right, thank you, Jared. If you are a Star Wars fan, you will recognize the line, I am your father. You'll also recognize the common whisk quote, right? Luke, I am your father. But it's, it's a moment of revelation, right? Um, Mark Hamill, who played Luke Skywalker, he didn't even find out until shortly before that scene that that would be the revelation, that Darth Vader was Luke's father. He actually had a secret from most of the cast and crew that this is what would happen, that this would be a new piece of information, that Luke, who's fighting for good, actually was Darth Vader's son. And this idea, right, of somebody who's fighting for good but turns out to come from a dark family past, from a villain, from a murderer, from someone who they don't know how they could ever be good and cast doubt on their ability to be the hero. This is a common thing in movies, right? Because a lot of times we wonder, well, could, could good come out of my family, right? Could good come out of my situation? And some of us have great families and we don't relate to this at all, but there's a lot of times in history where it's, could, could good come out of where I come from. If you ever a show of the, uh, the crime procedural uh, show Bones, right? Celie Booth was the, the descendant, the great-great-great-grandson of an assassin, right, that had tried to kill, kill a president. And so he's an FBI agent, he's fighting for the good, but it's always, oh, is this who I am? Is this where I, where I come from? Can I be a force for good considering my family's past? So this is the story we get to in Psalm 49 when we talk about the sons of Korah. These guys who write a bunch of psalms, psalms that are really like close in the relationship to God, like really like warm, really like probably the closest to modern worship songs that we have. These guys came from the line of Korah, which if you've read the Bible, was from the rebellion of Korah. These guys were Levites, but they decided that they would organize about 250 of them back in Moses' day and try to overthrow Moses. So this wasn't just like, oh, you know, we're going to do a little bit of complaining. This isn't, oh, you know, like maybe it'd be nice if things were different. It was, no, let's seize leadership of the nation of Israel and overthrow God's entire plan here. And so God judged them. And the sons of, and so the original Korah and those who had led the rebellion, those people ended up being judged. They ended up dying. But God spared the ones who were either too young to know what was going on or who hadn't joined in the rebellion. We don't know what the reason was. But there were some people of Korah's line that were spared because they weren't guilty. They hadn't joined in this plot to overthrow. And so over the years, I can imagine it would be pretty uneasy if you come from Korah's family, right? That you're still like part of the Levites. You're living in different towns. We see in the story of Hannah and Samuel that, uh, that uh, his fa Samuel's father, he's from the line, of, the line of Korah. He's still from this family. You see that in First Chronicles. But they were living in the hill country of Ephraim. So they were living in kind of, you know, the, the Levites allotted lands in different areas. But not all of them were, were near the temple, were, were near the work of God. So there's this idea of like, yeah, we're still part of this family and we're still going to have a job to do as, as helping out the temple. But uh, what that is isn't quite sure. But over the years, the sons of Korah continued to serve. And in the time of the tabernacle of David leading up to the temple of Solomon, David actually gave them some pretty specific jobs. They ended up being like guardians of the doors. Some of them actually ended up fighting with David in military campaigns. And so they began to have this credibility of the sons of Korah, they didn't just come from this bad backstory. They didn't just come from this family of villains. They're people who have 
regained credibility and have shown that they are serving in God's house. They have shown that they are part of what God is doing, and God has a purpose and a plan for them. I can imagine that would have been pretty reassuring over time, to go, yeah, God, God is using us. God didn't just spare us to, you know, teach us a lesson, but God spared us because he had a plan for us. God had a purpose for our lives. He had something to do with our family. And so when you see the sons of Korah write psalms, right, these, like, probably seventh generation, great, 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 great grandsons or further, these guys are like, I know God. I, I, I respect his power and his majesty and his judgment. It, it was fair for him to do what he did to those who led the rebellion. But thank God he didn't give up on our family. Thank God he showed mercy to us. Thank God that we now have a place and a purpose in God's house. And so when you read the Psalms that are like the sons of Korah, right? These like great, 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 great grandsons of the people that led the rebellion. You go, wow, they had this real closeness to God. There's this like relationship here. There's talking about how close God is, how satisfying relationship is with him, how good God is to them. And so on and on, you're just like, wow, there's this, this familiarity. But it's a familiarity that comes from a story. A story of, wow, God actually has a plan for us and a purpose for us. No matter what our family has come from. Now contrast this to like the Psalms of Asaph. If you read the Psalms of Asaph, they're usually like these like kind of prophetic judgment-like. They seem like pretty harsh in comparison. But the sons of Korah are just like, I, I love you, God. You're so good. And rejoice in who God is. I love that David specifically invited them to. That David said, hey guys, I want you to do this, this, and this for me. I think David being the youngest son, this is again my speculation and my guess, but I think David is the youngest, or one of the, one of the youngest sons, and the one who was overlooked, was like, I, I need to make sure these guys have a place. And they've already worked back, they've already been serving in the temple. But he invited them to do things more so. So they got into music, they did different things. And they had experienced God's judgment and they knew God. So when they started to write psalms, they wrote psalms like 42.1. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul, God, longs after you. Psalm 84.1 is the one where it says, how lovely is your dwelling place, O God. Psalm 46.1-3, here's what the sons of Korah are saying. God is our refuge and our strength in ever-present help and trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way, as it did in judgment to their great-great ancestors, and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. Though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. God is our refuge. God is our hope. God is the one that we trust. God, I long for you. I need you. You are the one that we know through these generations. We have this renewed purpose because of you. We can write, be still and know that I am God. These are the songs of the sons of Korah because they had a history, they had a purpose, and they had a relationship of God using them in their story. And so this wisdom is gained from real experience. They have some credibility. So when we have Psalm 49, the one we're going to read today, you can turn it there in your Bibles or your Bible apps. It'll be in the screen as well, but it'll be tiny text as always. So you can turn to Psalm 49. This one's actually a wisdom psalm. It reads a lot more like Ecclesiastes or Proverbs or any of the other wisdom literature in the Bible. This is actually a psalm that says, this is here to teach you a lesson. And this is here specifically, I'm going to kind of identify it as a wisdom psalm right off the bat. So it says this, Hear this, all you peoples. Listen, all who live in the world, both low and high, rich and poor alike. My mouth will speak words of wisdom. 
The meditation of my heart will give you understanding. I will turn my ear to a proverb. With my, the harp, I will expand my riddle. This is like an extended intro, right? This psalm is like not super long. This is quite a long chunk of the psalm. And they're saying here, this is a proverb. This is wisdom. This is understanding. This is a riddle. I, I'm setting this up, guys. This is wisdom literature. And when I think of this like extended intro, I just think of like, we won't get fooled again by the who, and like just like the organ comes in, right, and then the other instruments, and like the intro to that song is so long, right, and then everything else comes over that song, and you're just like, yeah, well, it's more like, yeah, right, but it's, it's great, it's this long intro, and then it kicks in, so the intro to this song is actually pretty extended, they're saying, hey, it's, it's a proverb, and the who were like, I'll pick up my guitar and play, this guy's like, I'm going to pick up my harp and expand the riddle, and he starts, he starts it like this, he says, I'm not afraid of evil days. He says, why should I fear when evil days come, when wicked deceivers surround me, those who trust in their wealth and boast in their great riches? So the, this is the basic problem of the psalm, right? Like, these guys have experienced God's fair judgment for their ancestors. But they're going, hey, you know, e evil days happen. And in this psalm, the, pro the, pro the problem is, especially wealthy people who don't trust God and oppress others, right? People whose wealth leads them to say, I can do whatever I want. And the problem too, right, is like, well, this is happening. Clearly, you're not seeing God stopping it. So like, what do you do with evil? What do you do when people who are economically able to do whatever they want just do whatever they want? And I mean, you could apply this to all sorts of situations, right? You could apply this to the difficulty of finding housing versus people just making money off housing right now. You go around the world and you could talk about areas like Pakistan, right, where a lot of Christians mostly converted from people who were not of economically um, great situations, continue to be oppressed by government policies and by practice. You go into, into ancient Rome, right, where Christians were excluded from different transactions, from different, from different ways of doing business. Economic persecution and being oppressed by those who have the money to do what they want, it's a pretty common thing. You're going to see it through history. And these guys early on in Psalms are like, man, I am seeing the rich get richer, and they just think they can do what they want. And I'm not seeing God move in judgment right now. So what am I going to do about it? But they didn't say, oh, well, it's terrible. And I'm afraid of what's going to happen. These days are evil. And I just don't know. The world's getting worse and worse. They go, why should I fear? Evil days are going to come. Evil people are going to come. But why should I fear? And they set it up with this not, look how bad it is, but we don't have to fear. You don't have to fear. Fear doesn't have to be the response that we have. Because they say this, verse 7. No one can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for them. The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough so that they should live on forever and not see decay. No matter how rich you are, you can't pay enough to live forever. No matter how rich you are, you only have one life. For all can see, verse 10, that the wise die, that the foolish and the senseless also perish, leaving their wealth to others. Their tombs will remain their houses forever, their dwellings for endless generations, though they had named lands after themselves. People, despite their wealth, do not endure. They are like the beasts that perish. Everyone's going to die, right? In the Old Testament, there's some uncertainty of what happens after you die. In Ecclesiastes 2, right, they're like, who knows whether the soul of the animal goes down and the spirit of man ascends from the earth. We're actually not, not totally sure what happens after we die. But you also have foreshadowing. 
you also have this idea of there's something more than this. You see God give to people ideas and understanding that that's not all that there is. We talk about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus affirms, right, he's not the God of the dead, but the living. And you have psalms like this that say, death is not the end. And this is why I'm not going to fear. Because if this life is all there is, like, man, we're in trouble. But I have a hope beyond just being wealthy or being famous, naming lands after ourselves, having a lot of followers. Verse 13, this is the fate of those who trust in themselves and of their followers who approve their sayings. Didn't matter what your ancient Israelite follower count was. That's not going to change things. So he goes on and says, verse 14, they are like sheep and are destined to die. Death will be their shepherd. But the upright will prevail over them in the morning. Their forms will decay in the grave far from their princely mansions. So these, all these verses, right, are just, they're just talking about it doesn't matter about your wealth because you can't save yourself from death. It doesn't matter how much power you have, how many followers, how much fame, how much reputation, how much is named after you in the end. Because in the end, it's all going to go away. I worked in a few nonprofits. I worked in some private nonprofits, and I've worked for hospitals, and I've worked for outpatient clinics. And I remember working in a few cases in the development side of things. And I remember once that we were, they had just raised some money for a new imaging area. And so in the new imaging area, there were all the plaques, right? All, all the donations, all the names of people who had donated, you know, $1,000, $5,000, $100,000. And they're all on the plaques, and they're all up there, and it's the so-and-so wing, right? Because you have things named after you. And I remember going to the old wing and looking at the old sign of the old donors and the old names. And it was my job that summer to take that old sign, put it on a cart, and take it down to the sub-basement, never for it to be seen again. We can name stuff after us, but it's not going to endure, right? Yeah, you can still respect somebody by making a donation in their name, nothing wrong with that. But fame is inherently temporary. Buildings, lands, legacies, they don't last forever. And so then in verse 15, you get this prophetic word. The sons of Korah have you have this idea of what's going to happen after they die, the reason they have hope, the reason they're not going to fear. This is like the course part. But God will redeem me from the realm of the dead. He will surely take me to himself. That's amazing. Death is not the end. And the sons of Korah are assured of this. And you'll see this in other parts in the Old Testament. You'll see this in other parts in the New Testament. But it's so personal here, right? It's not but God will revive the righteous, or the righteous will live forever. It's, but God will redeem me from the realm of the dead. He will surely take me to himself. This is the verses, right? These are the words of somebody who have a relationship with God, who know who he is, who have spoken with him, right? The ones who have served in the temple and say, man, God, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Better to be a doorkeeper in the tent of my God than to dwell among the tents of the wicked. Man, given your family history, Right? Better to be serving and doorkeepers, which they were. That was their job. No power, no fame, nobody's going to know your name. But better to just stand there at the gateway to God's presence and let people in and out and do security, which was their job, than be part of that rebellion and have the idea that you'd have your fame and your power and you'd somehow take over. These people lived what they were saying. So when they say, but God's going to redeem me from the realm of the dead, surely he's going to take me to himself. This is a God that they knew and they loved, and they were like, God, you are better. As we sang this morning, right? There's nothing better than you. This is so personal. 
And so again, when Jesus quotes in Luke 20, he says, you know, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's not the God of the dead, but the living. And Jesus quotes Psalm 110 about himself. Jesus draws out those Psalms and says, see, this is already spoken of. This is already in the Old Testament. And God's given verses like this talking about this is the future of the righteous. He says, I don't need to fear because God's going to redeem me from the realm of the dead. Surely he's going to take me to himself. I love that they've used the word ransom here, right? They talk about you can't ransom your own life. Jesus talks about being the ransom for many, right? Matthew and Mark and 1 Timothy. That Jesus is the one who would pay the price to redeem us. Pay the price so that we could live forever with God. God will surely redeem me. He will buy me back. He will pay the ransom. He will bear the cost. He will take me to himself. C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy has a hero called Dr. Alwyn Ransom. And there's a moment where he has gone through this different um, bunch of adventures, and God, God basically draws near to him. And the voice says this, for my name also is Ransom. And he goes, oh, yeah, that's who God is. He's the one who's intervened. He's the one who will buy me back. He will surely take me to himself. Nothing in the psalm is of about, I'm going to do something. I'm going to earn enough money. I'm going to be the one who's going to make it happen. But God's going to do this for me. We encounter the God who says, my name also is Ransom. I'm going to redeem you. And not just the righteous or some, like, big category of people or just a whole, like, you know, undefined group. You. I want to redeem you. I want to take you to myself. This is the God of personal relationship coming through in Psalms right away. This is the God who says, I work work one-on-one. I deal with individual hearts. I deal with the choices that we make. And yes, we're part of families and we're part of uh, doorkeepers and we're part of groups and we're part of histories. But I'm a God of me and you. I'm a God who speaks to us. I'm a God who wants to deal with us individually and redeem you and take you to myself. So they get into the results of this, right? Kind of the conclusion of wisdom. Verse 16. Do not be overawed when others grow rich, when the splendor of their houses increases, for they will take nothing with them when they die. Their splendor will not descend with them. Though while they live, they can't themselves blessed. When people praise you when you prosper, they will join with those who have gone before them, who will never again see the light of life. People who have wealth but lack understanding are like the beasts that perish. I'm not going to be overawed with wealth. They must have seen all sorts of things serving at the temple. They must have seen all sorts of ups and downs in their own family, too. Remember, they're part of the Levites, right? So they don't have an inheritance uh, of of their own. They don't have the same kind of lands to work. They're dependent on whether people are following God and giving the money to support the Levites out of their tithes. Or if they're not, they don't have anything really to work off of. And so they're in a time right now, at least for most 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 of their writing, done around the time of David or afterwards, that there's a time of plenty. And so they're, they're receiving enough to live on. There's enough bread. People are bringing flour for them to eat, for oil, for all of that. But they're like, I'm not going to be overawed with wealth. Over the years, we've known lean times. We've known good times. But wealth, whether it's ours or others, is not going to impress me. 
none of it's going to go with us. And I know the one who's going to redeem me. I know the one who has the wealth that matters. I know the one who's going to buy me back. So as we conclude today, a few things I want to take from this. Number one, just reading this, reading the story of the sons of Korah, God would be saying to us that our past doesn't have to define us. Many of us are fortunate to come from good families who love Jesus and give a good legacy. But a lot of us have things in our families, too, where we're like, man, does that just, does that taint everything? My own life, you know, the things that I've done, but there's stuff that I'm not proud of. There's stuff that still comes through. There's something that just, man, God, can you still use that? And God's resounding answer is yes. He's the God of redemption. He's the God of writing new stories. He's the God of saying, whoever your father was, your mother was, your initial legacy, I write new stories. And you can choose to be a doorkeeper in the house of your God. You can choose to draw near to God's presence. You can choose that it is better to be near to God for one day than spend a thousand days elsewhere. God's invitation is always for closeness to him. So the second thing some of us might want to do is say, man, like, have, I, have, I, have I heard that invitation? Have I been walking in that close relationship with God? I think some of us might just need a fresh impression that the Holy Spirit isn't just here to save us as a people, but to deal with us as individuals, to speak to us. He says, I have words to speak to you. I have encouragement to speak to you. I have conviction and growth to speak to you. I have a legacy I want you to leave. Part of the sons of Korah, it was their psalms. But for all of us, there's going to be things the Holy Spirit wants us to do as part of his work in the world. Another one might be if we have fear. Are we giving too much priority to people? Too much priority to either people we know or the idea that evil in the world is growing? Too much priority to money as a factor? All these things come through in those songs, right? Is there a fear that God wants to remove for us today? And if there's a fear... I encourage you to just bring it to God and say, God, I don't want to be afraid of evil people, of evil times, of money is too big of a factor, God. I just, I want to know you, that you have the power and the love and the closeness. It means I don't have to be afraid. Someone must need to bring that fear to God. And the last is just the confidence of eternity. That for these guys, it wasn't an abstract thing. It wasn't, you know, yeah, when we die, we'll be with God someday. That's great. It was... Man, it makes a real difference when things are bad. That there is an eternity with God. It's not a vague thing. It's not a maybe. But God, you are saying you will take me to yourself. Some of us may need to ask God for just a fresh reassurance of that eternity with him. That rock-solid certainty that whatever happens, God will redeem us. He will take us to himself. So as we've done the other weeks, I'd like to close with reading the psalm together. I'm going to invite you guys to stand with me. We're going to put it on the screen again. You might want to pull it up in your Bibles as well if you want bigger text. (laughs) And I encourage you to read this out loud. Let's be our response today, that with the sons of Korah, we're going to say these words. Hear this, all you peoples. Listen, all who live in this world, both low and high, rich and poor alike. My mouth will speak words of wisdom. The meditation of my heart will give you understanding. I will turn my ear to a proverb, and with the harp, I will expound my riddle. Why should I fear when evil days come, when wicked deceivers surround me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of their great riches? 
No one can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for them. The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough so that they shouldn't live on forever and not see decay. For all can see that the wise die, but the foolish and the senseless also perish, leaving their wealth to others. Their tombs will remain their houses forever, their dwellings for endless generations, though they had named lands after themselves. People, despite their wealth, do not endure. They are like the beasts that perish. This is the fate of those who trust in themselves and of their followers who approve their sayings. They are like sheep and are destined to die. Death will be their shepherd, but the upright will prevail over them in the morning. Their forms will decay in the grave, far from their princely mansions. But God will redeem me from the realm of the dead. He will surely take me to himself. Do not be overawed when others grow rich, when the splendor of their houses increases, for they will take nothing with them when they die. Their splendor will not descend with them. Though while they live, they count themselves blessed, and people praise you when you prosper. They will join those who have gone before them, who will never again see the light of life. People who have wealth but lack understanding are like the beasts that perish. God, I pray today that you would seal the words of this psalm into our hearts. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would seal into our hearts the reassurance that we need, the invitation to have a relationship with you. God, just thank you for the, the testimony and the story of the sons of Korah, Lord. But they are those who were spared, God, by your mercy. They are those who served and drew near to you, and they are those who spoke of the life to come and the reassurance they have in you. God, I pray for each person here today and watching online that you would continue to write our stories. May they be stories of closeness to you. May they be stories of dependence on you. God, continue to show us who you are and what a life lived close to you is like. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we close, we've got a couple of verses I'll read over you. But I want to give an invitation as well publicly. Um, in a couple of weeks, on August 6th, we're going to do a testimony sort of Sunday. It's going to be called Five by Five Sunday. Five uh, people giving a testimony, five minutes each. And it's this. What's one psalm that God has spoken to you through? I think we have four volunteers so far. We're looking for one more. But what's one psalm that God's spoken to you to? And if it's, you know, if it's a long psalm like 119, you'll just read like a few verses, not the whole thing. But just say, hey, here's the psalm. Here's a couple of verses. And here's one thing that God's been saying to me. And I wanted to invite you guys that if you want to be part of that, go ahead and talk to myself or talk to Jared, and we'll sign you up. Maybe we'll go to six people if we really get a whole bunch of interest. But we'll have an opportunity for some testimonies. And I want this uh, community to be able to share, hey, this is what God is doing in my life. This is how God is speaking to me. And because he does it in the language of the Psalms, let's uh, share and showcase how God's doing that with our community. Sound good? All right. So we're going to close with Ephesians and some verses from chapter 3. Now, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Go with God.